The title of my message this morning is Sacrifice That Pleases God, and we're going to be looking in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews basically is written to the Jewish church, meaning the Jewish Christians, those that have left Judaism and become Jewish Christians. And the changes that they are having to experience make any change we might experience seem like nothing. Their changes were huge. And because the change was so different, it wasn't just change in style, necessarily. It wasn't just change in format. It was a change in basic doctrines, basic beliefs. I mean, it was a change. It went as far as it changed the way you receive forgiveness, the way sins are dealt with in your life. So you can imagine for the Jewish Christians, adapting to this change would have been kind of challenging. And it was. And the book of Hebrews is written to the Jewish Christians who, it appears, are struggling with some things in adapting to the change. And the writer of Hebrews, whoever he is, is making the primary point that the old form of Judaism has been fulfilled and replaced by Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah they were waiting for, the Messiah that all of their old form of religion all that Old Testament temple worship, all of that stuff had been pointing to Jesus. And now it's changing because Jesus is there. And they are having a difficult time adapting to that kind of change. So we're going to look at some of the things that changed in their style of worship. As I said, the title of my message is Sacrifices That Please God. You know, the Old Testament religion, the Judaism, was really almost all entirely around religious ceremony and sacrifice. Bringing sacrifices, sacrificing animals, shedding blood, all of those things. It was a part of their worship, an integral part of their worship. And that is the old form. But the new form of worship also has sacrifices in it. They're totally different, but they're still there. There are sacrifices that please God. Not blood, not animals, not for the forgiveness of sins. That's been dealt with. But there are still other sacrifices. So Hebrews, as we look into chapter 13, is where we're going to end up. It's written to the Jewish believers... And all the temple worship is basically no longer to be continued. It's interesting, in my mind, that in about 70 AD, the Romans finally destroyed the temple. It's almost as as if God said, I've given you a chance, I've tried to tell you, it's over and done with. Here, the temple's now gone. But as crazy as that is, a lot of the Jewish people, not Jewish Messianic Jews, not Jewish believers in Christ, but more traditional Jews, they're still waiting to rebuild the temple. They're still waiting to start animal sacrifice again. And it's a whole different game. They missed it completely. We're going to look at this, and there's going to be some scriptures we'll back up and, and support, we'll kind of bring clarity maybe even to what I'm saying here. But basically, to the, the Judaist, Judaist, the practice of Judaism, 
It was saying, you know what? If you don't leave that behind, there's no place for you at the new altar. There's no place for you to eat the bread of life. The altar is the cross. The sacrifice was Jesus, the bread of life. He's saying, there's no place for you there. You've got to leave that religion behind. I have arrived. I have come. The old way of worship and the new way of worship. In chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 8 through 16. In my mind, it shows me the why this change could take place, why it was absolutely necessary that it take place, and then give us a little bit of a picture of the new way, the how of worship. So I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to start at verse 8, and we'll read through verse 16, and then we'll go ahead and back up a little bit and look at some of those verses. Verse 8 starts out this way. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hallelujah. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. Speaking to the Jewish people, remember, who practiced all those dietary laws, all that stuff. He says, we have an altar. It's the cross. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have a cross, an altar called the cross. And you can't even come to it if you're still serving in the temple and worshiping the old way. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, they're burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus, also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. The how and the why. In verse 8, we have a stability in Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's a stability in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have stability in Christ. The Word of God does not change. And he's going on and saying, you know, we have this kind of stability because we have an unchanging God. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to worry that he's going to change on you all of a sudden. He fulfilled the promises of all the law that were pointing forward to Christ, and he has come. He did what he was supposed to do. He's not going to change. He goes on and he says in verse 9, do not be carried away by these varied and strained teachings. We have the word of God. He's not going to add to it. He's not going to subtract to it. The word of God should always, 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 always be the standard by which we compare any teaching. It should prevent us from the latest fad in the the teaching of the Word of God, the latest fad in ministry, the famous new revelation in ministry. 
Not that God isn't revealing things to us. Not that things can't change in how they're done. But the Christian church has been so crazy in so many places, in so many ways, by grabbing hold of that new thing because it sort of felt good. It brought a new excitement or a new energy, and then it just fades away because it wasn't of the Lord. So you say, we have a Jesus that doesn't change. We have the word of God that doesn't change. It should bring stability. And he uses specifically, he mentions food. Evidently, you know, we know there were all the dietary laws, but evidently there must have been some people teaching about, hey, you want to have a great spiritual experience, eat certain foods. Made me think of peyote right away. And some of you have no idea what I just said. That's good. You led a cleaner life than me. But it makes us think that there must have been something that was weird out there, and some of the people were embracing it. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't go there. We should know better. And if you do, if you do, you can't come to the new altar. You won't be receiving the benefits of the cross. You will not be able to eat of the bread of life. And he goes on and, and in verse 9 when he says, he starts that out by saying, and our hearts will be strengthened by grace. We need to grab a hold of that. It is by grace. He strengthens us by grace. Yeah, we need to take care of our physical body. We need to eat right. But he's going so far beyond that. He says that you may be strengthened by grace, the grace of God strengthening our heart, purifying our heart, keeping our heart pure and in a right place. You will be strengthened by grace. In verse 10, the writer's response is that we now have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Basically, he's saying, all you traditional Jewish people, if you don't change, you're missing it completely. There is no salvation through any other. Everything in the Old Testament, every one of those animals you killed all these hundreds and hundreds of years, stop it. It's done. They're doing nothing for you anymore. And he was clear. The sacrifices that he wants are not on that old altar. It will do you of no good. Works will do you no good in terms of salvation. It doesn't matter how good they look, how pretty they are, how many compliments we get for all those good things. They're worthless in terms of our salvation and forgiveness of sins. And the writer to the Hebrews is telling him, you've got to leave that behind and come to the new way. The old way wasn't bad. It was from God. But it pointed to his Messiah. And the Messiah has came, and now there is a new way to worship. There is a new way to receive forgiveness of sins. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ, shed once for all, paid in full. You don't have to keep killing animals, shedding their blood, and sprinkling it here and there because it does you no good. All that incense you're burning that's going up that smelled so nice, it's a stench in my nostrils, he says. I don't want it anymore. The why is because it doesn't do any good. It's over with. In verse 11 and 12, it pictures Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. I just want to make sure we all track with that because it sounds a little weird the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. In their old religion, most of the animals that were sacrificed could be eaten by the priests. 
But when they sacrificed the animals that were to be the atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice that was going to appease God's anger or wrath towards their sin, to atone for their sins, those animals, they would take their blood and they would go sprinkle it on the altars and do their thing with it. But that animal could not be eaten. That animal in its entirety, its hide, its flesh, and all of the entrails, all of the, inte- uh, the guts, everything, everything else had to be burned outside the city gate. And Leviticus, it even expounds on it and says, you know, and whoever takes it out there, man, they've got to they change their garments, they've got to take a bath, they've got to do all these things so that they're clean. And he says that's even a picture of Jesus, the Messiah, who came. And he was taken outside the camp, outside the gate, outside the city of Jerusalem. He was taken outside and sacrificed. And his atoning sacrifice, his blood, washed away sin forever. So he's making a picture that the Jewish people should understand much better than all of us might if we just read it. He says in verse 12, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people. And the sanctification thing is kind of an interesting thing. It's like some of the things we encounter. There's like a spiritual meaning that, that is already accomplished. And then there's a literal physical act of it being walked out and worked out in their life. You know, when Jesus died on that cross for us and was raised from the dead, we were sanctified in God's eyes. We were sanctified. Sin was dealt with completely. And yet, in our lives, we are walking out this process of becoming more like Christ, becoming more and more sanctified. So there's a positional place where we already are as a Christian you're, you're, you're sanctified in God's eyes. Otherwise, he couldn't look at you and me. But because of what Christ did. And now the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us to bring about a greater and greater manifestation of that sanctification in our lives. It's a process. In God's eyes, I'm perfect because of Christ. In the world's eyes, I got a little ways to go. Positionally, practically, It says we were a sanctified people through his blood. And then that picture, he suffered outside the gate, which to the Jewish mindset would have made them think of the atoning sacrifices that had to be taken outside the city and the crucifixion took place there. The writer Hebrew then lays out in verses 13 through 16 a new way of worship. Or at least he lays out part of the new way of worship. And I'm going to look at three, what I believe are three sacrifices that are acceptable to God. The first one isn't as clearly stated as a sacrifice, but I think when you look at it, you might agree with me that it is one. In verse, starting in verse um, 13. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Jesus, as I said, was taken outside the camp. He was taken outside the gate. He was taken outside the city. That's where he was tortured. That's where he was killed on a cross between those two thieves. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us, go outside the camp and to bear the abuse, bear the approach. In other words, take on his suffering. A sacrifice of suffering that is acceptable to God. Because he suffered, he says, we're going to suffer. Don't be surprised that we're going to suffer. The world does not like us. They never will. We live in the world. 
We want to build relationships with the world, but we are distinctly different than those that are still in the world. And Jesus is saying, go outside the camp. And I want to use the picture of go outside the church. If your faith starts and stops when you come here on a Sunday morning, we're missing it. Go outside the camp. Go outside there, out the camp where there is, there is a chance, a very good chance, that we are going to be persecuted, that we are going to suffer in some ways for Christ. The place where it's more dangerous. It's not quite as comfort. It's going to take us out of our comfort zone. We're called to go out and suffer the reproach of Christ, a sacrifice of suffering that we, I believe God desires. There's a couple of scriptures that I think say it pretty clearly. In Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, if you want to follow me, if you want to be one of my followers, here's what you have to do. You must deny yourself. I like comfort. I like safety. I don't like confrontation. God's saying, get over it. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Not your cross. Take up his cross. Bear his reproach. It says, take up his cross and follow me. Follow me. Leave that safe safe place. Get out there where we're at risk. Paul told us in Romans chapter 8, he says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I've shared that so many times. I just love that verse. And I love as it continues. It says, that we are children of God, and if children, heirs, heirs also of God, fellow heirs with Christ, or joint heirs with Christ. I love that. And most of the time when I share that, that's where I stop. Most of the time when I'm encouraging myself or encourage somebody else, that's where I stop. You know, we're called children of God. That's what he calls us. That's what he sees us at. He's adopted us into his family. As a matter of fact, we're heirs of Christ. Not only that, we're joint heirs with Christ. Whatever's his is ours. And I stopped there. But the verse didn't. The verse continues on. If, indeed, we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. It's it's assumed that as children of God, joint heirs with Christ. We are going to go outside the camp and we know we're going to leave a safe place, a comfortable place, a secure place, and we're going to end up putting ourselves at risk. The world's not going to like you. They're going to ridicule you. Gal, in some parts of the world, we got it made here, right? In some parts of the world, you go out in a public place and share Jesus, you're going to go to jail, you may get beaten, or more likely you'll get killed. And maybe your family too, just to make sure no one else is as foolish as you just were. We need to go outside the camp. And it may be just out in our workplace, out in our communities, but gee, there's people that are going out and enduring the suffering of Christ all over the world. There are missionaries in places where the government says, get out, because we cannot control the violence that's coming after Christians. Our country says, come home. Even the sending churches or uh, ministries of those missionaries are saying, it's not safe, come back. Some do. Don't blame them. But there's some who say, no, no. There's a work here and we've got to stay. We're willing to suffer for Christ. We have some new believers that need to be discipled. We've got people that haven't accepted Christ yet. We can't go anywhere. And then we often read stories that those very missionaries 
lose their lives because they didn't leave. They suffered with Christ. They suffered for Christ. They bared his reproach. We're not all called to do that. We're not all called to be martyrs. We're not all called to die on a cross upside down or something like that. No, but we're called to participate and partake in the sufferings of Christ by getting outside the camp. And that kind of sacrifice, I believe, is pleasing to God. And he gives us in verse 14 what I believe is critical for us to understand the reason why that we're able to suffer for Christ. He says in verse 14, for we we do not have a lasting city. He's simply saying, where we're at now isn't eternal. This earth is all going to be gone. But we keep our eye on the city that is eternal, spending eternity with Christ, with the Father. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to be there with him in his presence forever. Keeping our eye on that doesn't make putting ourselves at risk or suffering for Christ here that big a deal. And I know it's easy to say those things, but it's reality. How sold are are we? Are we willing to suffer for Christ, to offer up that sacrifice of suffering? In addition to the sacrifice of suffering, we are continually to offer up the sacrifice of praise. That one's way more fun. A sacrifice of praise. John Piper cites C.S. Lewis, and some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis writings. Uh, John Piper was or is the pastor of Bethlehem uh, Church in uh, Minneapolis, downtown Minneapolis. But he is, John Piper is citing uh, C.S. Lewis in C.S. Lewis's book, Reflections on the Psalms. Now, C.S. Lewis, you've got to understand, in Christian circles, he's a big name. He's a big deal. His books, his author. But there was a time when he did. He was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. And as on his way to becoming a believer, there were a lot of things that troubled him. One of them was all this praise God stuff throughout the Psalms. He's like, and I've heard this from people, maybe you have too. What kind of egotistical guy is this God you saw? I mean, that you serve. All he wants us to do is praise him. All he wants to do is worship him. Boy, what a needy God you have. And C.S. Lewis says, I kind of wrestled with that. I kind of struggled with that. And Piper quotes him, and this is what he says from the book uh, Reflections in the Psalms. The most obvious fact about praise, whether it's praise of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of a compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers praising their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Fans praising their favorite team. That wasn't C.S. Lois, that was me. And then he goes on and says, my whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended upon my absurdly denying to us as regard to the supremely valuable, that's how he referred to God, the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy 
because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. I think there's such profound truth, especially just in that last sentence. You know, Cindy and I love to hike, or at least one of us does. And, man, we were out hiking in Glacier National Park last summer. And we're back up there in the mountains and the, the, the cliffs and the rivers and the waterfalls and the glaciers. And, oh, my goodness. You know what? We didn't walk in silence much. We kept going, wow, look at that. Man, isn't that amazing? Can you believe that? Take a picture of that. That's so awesome. Why? Because if we just walk and look, you know, it doesn't feel near as good. But if we start talking and giving praise about whatever it is, I mean, Cindy and I skipped church and went to a football game. Forgive me, Lord. It was a playoff game. Most of you knew that. It was the one we won in the last 10 seconds. And man, it was crazy. But can you imagine if we'd have been standing in that stadium and Diggs ran that ball in for the touchdown and nobody did anything? It would have lost so much. Came home for the next three days. Everybody I met walked around like this. (laughs) Did you see that game? No. You didn't leave early, did you? Yeah, we did. Oh, really? No, of course we didn't. You know, but we walked around with this big grin in our face, and all we wanted to do was talk about it. Praise it, except for Cindy Barnes. <laughs> the fruit of our lips will get there. <laughs> but it made it so much better. Can you imagine if we'd have drove home, nobody in the car talked about the game? We got home, and the next day everybody got up and pretended like a name didn't even occur. Man, you couldn't wait to praise. Now I want you to do this once. You know, if you feel like it, close your eyes, if you feel like it. And I want you to to put yourself in a prisoner of war, cage, in total darkness. Total darkness. There's no way out. You can't do anything to get out. And then all of a sudden, one day, the gate comes open, and the sunlight comes rushing in, and they say, you're free, come on out. What would you do if you still had any strength left? Oh, my goodness, would you rejoice or would you rejoice? Would you be filled with excitement and joy? The reality is, when it comes to praising God, you and I were in a cage worse than that. We were in a pit of condemnation going to hell. There was no way out that we, could, we couldn't do anything about it. Nothing. Nothing. We were trapped in sin. The power of sin had us. And the ultimate power of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. That's where we were before we accepted Christ. And the cross and Jesus Christ blew that door open and says, come on out. You are now free. Your sins are forgiven. You are walking in the light. And we go, okay, that's pretty cool. That's how we act sometimes. I'm going to pick on Dana. Where's Dana? He's in the back row. You know, sometimes I look at Dana's posts on Facebook. and Wow. You know what? I have a new appreciation for a post of the sunrise where he just quote, good morning, God. 
Or he puts another post on there of the clouds or the scenery, and he just goes, wow. You know what? That's what every single one of us should be doing all the time, praising God. If it's as amazing as we think it is and say it is, if he's amazing as we say he is, as he's as awesome as we sing about him being, how can we contain it? We should be like a glass of water. You never notice you can fill a glass of water so full that if you get down and look at the top, it actually is higher than the glass. It's good until you try to walk with it, right? That's how we should be. We should be like that glass of water, so filled with the joy of who God is and what he's done that we can't not overflow with thanksgiving and praise. We should, be able to, we should not be able to even act. Well, I'm not, don't take this literally, Dana. We shouldn't even be able to act normal in the world's eyes. We shouldn't be normal in the world's eyes. We should be overflowing continually with joy and praising God. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying in verse 15. Through him, you, can't, you shouldn't even get past those two words. The only way we can approach God with anything is through Christ. If you're not a Christian, your prayers are a waste of time. Your praise is a waste of time. Not one word of it, not one breath of it, not one syllable of it is getting to God's ears. He's just going, just like we do sometimes. But it's through him. He says, through him, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Continually. Now, hear me on this. That doesn't mean we say praise the Lord every three words. You know, I'm going to go watch football. Praise God. I hope it's a good game. Praise God. I'm going to have potato chips and dip. Praise God. I'm going to do this. Praise God. Then I'm going to have to go to the bathroom. Praise God. That's just dumb. That's just dumb. But continually means it should be woven into everything of every day of our life. That's what it means. Even if we're not speaking it, which we're supposed to, we will. But even if we're not, it should just be woven in. It's like Dana's post when he walks outside the door and sees the sun coming up and he grabs his camera and puts it on Facebook and goes, wow, God, good morning. That's part of it. It should be part of our normal life. Sadly, I know it's not in my life the way it should be. When we praise and sing these songs, man, these songs were amazing. Who he is. Who he is that there isn't a mountain he won't climb to chase you down. There isn't a door he won't break down to get us. And all we have to do is turn to him and say, Lord, here I am. I'm all yours. The darkness is broken. The gates that have kept us confined and locked in and condemned to hell, it's all gone. In a moment, how can we not praise him? When, when Brian was talking about anticipation, we should be anticipating every Sunday, because not only are we going to praise him, we get to do it with a whole bunch of like-minded people. It brings him glory and honor, and it fills us up for going out in the world and offering up the sacrifice of suffering. It's just an amazing thing that God does, because when we worship him, we get blessed. When we suffer for him, we get blessed. When we praise him, we get blessed. He's got such an economy set up that's hard for us to comprehend. 
the fruit of your lips, giving thanks or praising him. You know, any plant that bears fruit, where does that fruit's origin, where does it originate from? It originates down deep in the roots and flows up through the trunk into the branches, into the leaves, and then the fruit is manifested. The fruit of our lips, the, the thanksgiving and the praise coming from deep within our heart. Not just lips speaking. You know, there's a scripture that Jesus spoke in Matthew 15, verse 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's easy to walk in here and sing some words and maybe even hold up your hands and maybe close your eyes. And it's nothing but words coming off your lips. You may have the most beautiful voice there ever was. And if it's not coming from your heart, it just falls to the ground. The fruit of our lips giving thanks. Not just our lips. But for some of us who want to just quietly worship, it does say lips. There is a time and a place where we need to let it go. We need to verbalize it. We need to let it pass our lips. The fruit, fruit of our lips, praising him, praising him, proclaiming our thankfulness in verbal praise and in verbal worship. worship. The sacrifice of suffering, the sacrifice of praise, and thirdly, the sacrifice of doing good and sharing. In one of Piper's articles, he referred to it as the sacrifice of a shared life. I kind of like that. My Bible says doing good and sharing, so I'll go with that. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for which with such sacrifices God is pleased. Doing good is just a general term. It's just a general term for all kinds of practical ministry to other people. Doing good. Sharing comes from the Greek word, or it is the translation of the Greek word, koinonia. And it has a a much more intimate meaning to that word koinonia. Communicating, fellowshipping. One definition that I came across was this. It means sharing the essentials of life with those who lack them and are unable to work to attain them. Koinonia. The sacrifice of sharing our life with other people. Putting self aside to minister to others. And he says, don't neglect this. It is our responsibility to do good and to share. Galatians 6.10 says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. That does not mean we don't help unbelievers, but it means especially in the family of believers. Make sure whenever there's an opportunity, and boy, this gets to be a hard one, doesn't it? I mean, there are a million opportunities around the world, this disaster, that disaster, all these things. We really need to pray and know where and how to invest what God has blessed us with and how to pass it on out of our generosity. But he says, not just, but especially for the family of God, especially for believers. In 1 John three sixteen, it starts out and says, this is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. The sacrifices of suffering, the sacrifices of praise, and the sacrifice of sharing our life, sharing and doing good. Our worship still includes sacrifice. It has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins, but it has everything to do with demonstrating our love for God and our love for people. It has everything to do with the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your brothers as yourself. Sacrifices of praise, worship, suffering, and sharing. You know, the chief purpose for which God created us is to live in such a way as to bring him glory. To do this, we need to enjoy him forever. How many of us enjoy God? Good. How many of us enjoy God? Hopefully every hand went up, even the ones that didn't raise them. They went up in your mind. Seriously, the joy of the Lord is our strength. When we enjoy him, enjoy his presence, we should just bubble over with praise, praise of thanksgiving. Try to think of something that you shouldn't thank him for. My stupidity come to mind right away. I shouldn't have said that. Stop it. We should be so grateful for everything. And we glorify our God and we glorify him by those sacrifices of suffering, praise, and sharing our lives with them. Let's close in prayer. Father, I just give you thanks this morning. Father, I thank you for the songs that our worship team led us in. God declaring who you are. God laying out before us some of the many things that we have to be so thankful for. God starting with our salvation. Starting with your promises that you're with us. You'll never leave us. You'll never let us down. Father, your grace that abounds in our life. Your mercies that are new every day. God, the joy that we can have in our hearts in spite of circumstance. God, that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but one of faith. Lord, I praise you and thank you this morning for who you are and who you declare us to be in Christ. Lord, I pray that the revelation of who you are becomes greater and greater in our lives every day. That we truly become like that glass overflowing with water. That our praise is not something we can contain. Lord, I pray you would give us your boldness and your love as we go out and bear the reproach that the world had for you. I pray, God, that you woo us and draw us, change our hearts, that the praises would flow out of us in a way we can't even stop. And, Lord, that you would give us the heart that you have, your heart for those in need, whatever that need may be. God, I pray that we would have these things and do these things, that you would receive all the glory and honor. We can only ask this because Jesus made a way. In his name, we give thanks. Amen.